ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Bridget looking amazing, went Fantastic. There are scenes of celebration in the Kimberley of Western Australia to mark the opening of a major new bridge across the mighty Fitzroy River. The bridge was washed away in January after major flooding. And incredibly, given how remote it is, the Fitzroy River Bridge project was finished six months ahead of schedule, setting a new high bar for other construction projects. And working on the job was not without its northern quirks. It's been so many. It's been so many. I had to catch a crocodile once, put it back in the river. <laughs> Talk us through that. What happened? <laughs> the boss said, Tam, there's a crocodile. Sort it. <laughs> so I had to sort it. I had to get it, put it in the back of my unit, and put it back in the river. Good on you, Tam. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. The housing crisis is pushing more regional families out of cities and into uncertainty. Families are heading out bush with little more than a tent to provide safety and stability for their children. Our reporter, Emma D'Agostino, spoke to families in a dry ironbark forest just outside of Bendigo in Victoria and they told her they're worried about living in a tent as they enter summer with the worst of the fire season ahead. Our call queues are now full and we are unable to take any further calls right now. But please try again later. It's almost 30 degrees in Bendigo on the eve of what, for much of the state, is a public holiday. And Dallas is calling support agencies for help to keep a family with nine children fed and hydrated as they face yet another night in a tent in the bush. They're not camping by choice. They're one of a growing number of families living in tents after finding themselves without a house to call home. I don't want to upbring my kids into this. I feel disgusted. That's Emma, Dallas's partner and the mother of those nine children, who range in age from 18 years old to less than two years. Like most parents, she wants to give her children the best upbringing she can in a safe home with full bellies and every need met. But that's been challenging since the family lost its rental property in July. Usually we have meat in the box, in the esky, with ice. Money is especially tight when we meet Emma and her family, and both food and fuel are running low. Their beaten-up SUV is their lifeline, connecting them with services, showers and shops, but it needs repairs. Two to three times a day we usually go in if we've got the petrol. If the car's really, really low, like just on the empty, sometimes we do try to risk it. More than once, the family has found themselves stopped on the side of a road with nothing left in the tank. Strangers have stepped in to help with jerry cans and hearts filled with compassion. There was a farmer that helped us out the other day, seen us stuck on the side of the road. Very lovely person. Emma and Dallas have also been reaching out to services for help to meet their immediate requirements for food and fuel, as well as housing. But services are stretched thin, with limited resources and rising demand for help from families in need. We tried to get a place in that, but we just had no luck. That's Samantha Carline, a mother of two who is also living in a tent in the bush near Bendigo with her children and her partner. We've been in a house for 12 years. They've been living in a tent for about eight months now, after losing their rental property about a year ago. The local council has been telling Samantha, her nine-year-old and five-year-old sons, and her partner Robert, to move on. But she says they can't. We can't move. We've got nowhere to go. There's a couple of other camp spots, but it's further away from school. Samantha and her family no longer have a car. They're relying on an electric bike and lifts from friends for transport. Robert is still working, and the two boys are attending school and preschool. 
Keeping the kids at school is a priority for Robert and Samantha. Samantha says her eldest son has struggled with the change in the family's living situation, but she has noticed an improvement in his well-being with his school support. I don't want to move him because he's doing well. I'm really proud of him. Hey. The hum you can hear in the background while Samantha's talking is a petrol generator, which is powering her family's makeshift home. They have lighting, kitchen appliances and even a PlayStation, which provides some normality for their boys. But Samantha says their setup has its limits. Like we can't use the toaster and the oven and the TV all at the same time. Like we've got to work it out which ones we can use at what time. I think. Council to Homeless Persons Chief Executive Deborah Di Natale says homelessness has changed dramatically across the country. What we used to say before was mainly single people, but the trend that is emerging is that we're seeing families setting up tents in the bush because there is simply nowhere left for them to go. As the weather warms up, there's another pressing concern for these families, fire. It's really alarming that some Victorians find themselves sleeping rough in bushland during what's tipped to be a hot, dry summer. This demonstrates once again the really stark consequences of not having enough social and affordable housing for those who need it. That was Sarah Tui from the Community Housing Industry Association Victoria. The Victorian government says it is investing in social and affordable housing. In a statement, the government said work is already underway to deliver 425,600 homes across regional Victoria by 2051. Lisa Chesters, the federal member for Bendigo, says she is aware of families sleeping in the bush and is talking about it with her state and federal colleagues, as well as emergency services. Ultimately, how you help people out of the forest and out of those makeshift camps that are popping up is by building more homes and building our way out of the housing crisis. Lisa Chester is the federal member for Bendigo, finishing that story from Emma DiGostino. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Back in January, the images of a torn and broken bridge, barely standing as muddy floodwaters surged around it, became the symbol of heartache in the Kimberley of WA. It also caused major headaches because the bridge was the only connection for National Highway 1 over the Fitzroy River at Fitzroy Crossing, forcing freight trucks from Perth to take a massive detour via Alice Springs. But in a feat of engineering and expense, a new longer, higher and wider bridge was built in just eight months. The new dual lane bridge was officially opened yesterday, six months ahead of schedule. And the community celebrated, as Eddie Williams reports from Fitzroy Crossing. Local aged care residents were the first passengers driven across the new bridge, travelling from west to east before a convoy of trucks crossed in the opposite direction. Earlier, the community celebrated the occasion with a smoking ceremony, breakfast and community walk. Very proud of ourselves. This is, this is very exciting for us and Fitzroy very, very strong. Looks good, looks big, looks strong. We're really good. At least we've got two-lane bridge. We're proud. Bridge is looking amazing, man. Fantastic. Walking across the bridge, you get a sense of the magnitude, not just of the project itself, but of what it means for the whole community. So I help our local Kuniendi people get into employment in the project. So we have people working as cleaners, um, traffic controllers. We have labourers as well as machine operators. What has that done for your community to have these opportunities? Well, we have our younger ones that actually gain employment, gain skills, build confidence, self-esteem. Some of them will move on to other jobs, other projects. 
But yeah, it's been a big thing for most of the people in, in the valley. Nah, nothing like this before. What were you doing before this job? Uh, I was walking around. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What have you kind of learnt by when you've been on this project? Um, I've learned to cooperate as a team and work with, uh, get, and get involved with new things. Yeah. So what do you reckon you're going to do next? Um, I'll go back to and fix the Tanama. Because yeah. that's another big project, hey, Sealing yeah, the Tanama. Yeah, there's another big project, yeah. The new bridge is longer, taller and wider and has been completed six months ahead of schedule. Like flat out from the minute we hit the ground um, to... Yeah, still, still busy just to get it all ready. But so it's good. It's been good. What's the team been like that you've been working oh, with? Oh, the crew's great. The crew is great. Yeah, the mixture of all the three companies together have blended well, and I think um, what we've pulled off is amazing. How does it look? It's pretty good, especially now it's been swept by Ebony. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ebony. No, it's amazing. It's amazing to have a dual lane. Finally, I think it's great, and a walkway. I think it's great. What have been some of the, I don't know, the best stories or the highlights of the bridge project? It's been so many. It's been so many. I had to catch a crocodile once, put it back in the river. <laughs> Talk us through that. What happened? <laughs> the boss said, Tam, there's a crocodile. Sort it. <laughs> so I had to sort it. I had to get it, put it in the back of my ute and put it back in the river. It's actually right at the back of our works where the trucks are parked. And we didn't want to run it over. No. So I had to put it in the back of the ute and bring it back to the river. Yeah. So you are an all-rounder. Oh, yes, yeah, I was watching, yes. Eddie Williams speaking to locals celebrating the opening of the Fitzroy River Bridge in the Kimberley of WA. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. In the regional Victorian city of Ballarat, a project to create Australia's first memorial to acknowledge victims and survivors of sexual abuse is gaining momentum. The idea for a memorial was a recommendation in 2017, following the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. But it's been the survivors of sexual abuse themselves who've driven the project in Ballarat, a city which continues to suffer the ripple effects from being an epicentre of institutional abuse for many decades in the 20th century. Ballarat reporter Rochelle Kirkham has this story. Three ducks swim in a group across the water of this small lake near the centre of Ballarat in a large green open space known as Victoria Park. This is the site which has been selected to host Australia's first memorial to acknowledge victims and survivors of sexual abuse. I feel a sense of calm and peace down here. You see families up here feeding the ducks and relaxing, people walking their dogs and just enjoying the space and taking that quiet, mindful moment, I suppose, of relaxation up here and being by yourself or with others to connect with nature. Blake Curran was one of the early drivers of this memorial project and continues to play a key role in its development. Initially, I was pushing for the memorial because my dad passed away when I was 21 and now I've got my own two children. And just thinking that I would like to take them to a place that we can probably talk about him a bit more and, yeah, connect more together as a family. Mr Curran's father, Peter Curran, was abused by three priests during his time at school in Ballarat. He was abused multiple times by them all at both St Olympia St St Patrick's College and then, I suppose, repressed it all until the 90s when he saw one of them on TV being 
on the news receiving some award or accolades. He jumped up straight away and called the police and reported it. So he was a bit of a whistleblower in the 90s. He was one of the early voices pushing to get them locked up. His sort of motto was that he didn't want it to happen to other kids, what happened to him. Mr Curran started a fundraising campaign in 2019 to kick-start the memorial project. The idea had been discussed among a group of Ballarat survivors and their supporters, and community interest grew as Ballarat was highlighted as an epicentre for institutional child sexual abuse during the Royal Commission, which was finalised in 2017. City of Ballarat councillor and former trauma councillor Belinda Coates travelled with survivors to Rome to hear George Powell's evidence to the Royal Commission. That really put a spotlight nationally and really across the globe on the impact of child sexual abuse and institutional abuse. But also what happened as a result of that, it, it put a spotlight much broader on the issue of sexual abuse and child sexual abuse on all survivors. City of Ballarat took the lead in the memorial project in 2020 after advocacy from survivors and hosted creative art workshops to hear their stories and shape thinking about the memorial. Councillor Coates says the project has been expanded to acknowledge all victims and survivors of sexual abuse and violence beyond institutional settings. We know that Sexual abuse and sexual violence is an extremely underreported crime. Estimates are that at least one in five women and one in 20 men have been impacted at some point in their, their lives by child sexual abuse or, or sexual violence. City of Ballarat and the state government have committed a combined $1 million to the project. Half a million dollars more is needed to complete it. The council is asking the federal government or private donors to help out, but in the meantime has launched a competition for Australian design professionals to submit their ideas for the memorial. Public art expert David Fitzsimmons is chair of the committee that will assess the designs and select three finalists. It's an amazing project. It's a unique project as well with its approach. It's an opportunity for me to share my passion for place design and integration of art into significant places. I have a a strong belief in the, the power of art to make the world a better place. The three preferred competition entries will receive $5,000 each to continue working with survivors and supporters who form a reference group to develop a comprehensive memorial plan. The final design is expected to be selected in May. Councillor Coates says she hopes the memorial will have a profound and significant social impact. I believe that it's never too late for people to have an experience that turns their life around and and can be really life-changing. I hope that this project is a strong part of that as well, really just sending that message of acknowledging people's strength and, and courage and survival, but encouraging people who are feeling at a low point in their life that there is always hope. City of Ballarat anticipates the memorial will be completed in 2026. By that time, Blake Curran will be the same age as his father when he died. I hope that Ballarat can be that sort of focal point for people to go, wow, this is, this is best practice, this is how we can help people heal. Blake Curran, ending that story from Rochelle Kirkham. And if you or anyone you know needs support, contact 1800 Respect or Lifeline on 13 11 14. 
ABC Australia Wide. Public health advocates the world over look to New Zealand as exemplary when it came to public health policy around smoking. Last year, our nearest neighbour pioneered legislation that would mean all people born after January 2009 would not be able to legally buy cigarettes. And here's former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking at that time. Here there's a line in the sand that we are drawing today to say continuing to increase prices will not at this point continue to help people stop smoking. Um, and so now we need to look at the alternatives. We've done as much as we can there, uh, and the, this action plan is about the what next. Uh, we're very much focused here in this action plan uh, on ensuring that people do not take up smoking in the first place. This policy in New Zealand was considered across the world as best practice, but in a swift political move, it's now been wound back and the country's new government will scrap the country's pioneering legislation. So what does this say about the power of the smoking Lobby, and what can Australia learn from it? To d- discuss this, I'm joined by Professor Janet Hook, who's a specialist in public health at the University of Otago. Now, this generational smoking ban, um, Janet, set a trend, and the UK was even looking to do something similar. They're looking into it at the moment. Why roll it back? Well, look, that's an excellent question to ask. I mean, and we have, there's no logical evidence why any of the measures uh, should be rolled back. Um, so we think that the government has has made some concessions. We've got a major party, the National Party. We believe that it's made concessions to some of the minor parties. Um, and instead of showing leadership, what we now have is really a vacuum of moral courage and leadership in continuing to progress our world-leading smoke-free legislation. It's not just the smoke-free generation uh, that's being rolled back. Of course, it's also the policy on denicotinisation and the large reduction in the retail availability of tobacco products. Can you explain denicotinisation? That's a difficult word to say. Can you explain that to me? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this was a really profoundly important uh, policy. It's one that's also being considered by the Food and Drug Administration in the US. And essentially what it does is to set a new low nicotine standard. And that essentially makes smoking non-addict or tobacco products non-addictive and smoking an unrewarding practice. Now we have a lot of evidence for this uh, particular approach from randomised control trials, which of course are regarded as the gold standard of evidence. And what those trials show is that people who were given these very low nicotine cigarettes quickly lost interest in smoking. So they were exposed to fewer toxins, uh, they were more interested in quitting, made more, more quit attempts and were more likely to become smoke-free. So some of my colleagues did a, a study to model evidence from those trials as well as evidence from other sources and they predicted a really profound reduction in smoking prevalence and what was even more important was that that reduction occurred across all population groups. So it was also a very equitable measure, um, which, which of course is important for us here in Aotearoa. So how low is low, like in terms of nicotine levels? So you're talking about dropping it right down, but how low could you get it so that um, someone who was smoking a cigarette didn't get that hit and were able to kind of wean themselves off, I suppose? 
Well, most of the uh, randomized control trials that have been undertaken have used uh, low nicotine cigarettes with about 0 0.4 um, milligrams of nicotine per gram of tobacco. The standard that was set in Aotearoa uh, was 0 0.8 um, milligrams per gram. And I believe that there was an extensive review and that that particular standard just allowed for some fluctuation, but there was great confidence that that was still meeting the non-addictive standard. Now, this group, of, of changes that were to come into play in January, they're, they're being rolled back. What does this suggest about the power of big tobacco in politics in New Zealand? Well, that's a question that many people are asking, um, and I, I understand that there's a great deal of work underway at the moment, documenting associations between politicians and the links that they've either had directly with tobacco companies or indirectly through some of the front groups that we know the industry funds. So, of course, it's always very difficult to document these links. They're not things that any of the think tanks or politicians themselves tend to, to make public. And we also know that a lot of this lobbying is undertaken quite covertly. So they're the private conversations, they're the corporate hospitality, they're the invitations to dinner, where there's a friendly relationship that's struck up that makes politicians a, a sympathetic ear, I guess, to some of the arguments that are being put forward and really deflects their attention away from the evidence. And I guess it's a real irony that this coalition government has said that their decision making is going to be evidence-based decision making and that's a statement that appears in the coalition agreements well they couldn't have deviated further from that principle and rolling that or announcing that they plan to roll back this legislation in in australia if you live in the city you're less likely to smoke than if you live in the bush is that the same in new zealand um, I don't have data for urban-rural breakdowns, but as I've said, we, we certainly have uh, different levels of smoking prevalence among population groups, and we know that there is a very strong socioeconomic uh, gradient, so I think I'm correct in saying people who experience highest um, material deprivation are around six times more likely to smoke than people who have uh, high levels of material well-being. Fair enough. I, I suppose where I'm going to is the outcome of rolling back this this policy or this legislation, because it then does pr put pressure on the public health system. What is your concerns around the rollback of this and, and the pressure on pressure smoking puts on the public health system eventually? Well, we, we know from people who are clinicians, and I should make it clear that I don't have a clinical background, but I think it's today we had an open letter in a newspaper that was signed by over 100 different groups asking the government to reconsider its proposal to repeal this legislation. Many of the groups that were signing were medical groups, people who are dealing firsthand with the consequences of having to deal with smoking. And my own local paper this morning, the lead story was a group of doctors, lung cancer specialists, who were saying, what the heck do you think you are doing? You know, have you any thought at all to the consequences that this will have so clearly from their perspective, from everyone's perspective? This is just a profoundly retrograde step. And as I said, we are just hoping that the Prime Minister, who's shown such an abysmal lack of leadership, might finally realise the implications of what this proposal really will bring and decide that actually it's not something 
something that is sensible to proceed with. At this time last year, because this is when this was discussed and, and, and that's where we heard from former Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern, a seed was sown, I suppose, in the world of what the future could look like. Even if New Zealand isn't the first, do you feel that it might happen elsewhere? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think it's a little bit like plain packaging in Australia. I mean, it's an idea and we build up the evidence base and we, I mean, we know it's a good idea because the industry screams about it and anything that the tobacco industry opposes is always going to be a beneficial um, intervention from a public health perspective. So we develop the evidence and then these are brave politicians. So you had Nicola Robson, we had Aisha Beryl um, and eventually the momentum is simply unstoppable and so it may not occur in Aotearoa although I certainly haven't given up hope that it it may still go ahead but I'm sure it will happen elsewhere and everything that we have done here we want to share with our international counterparts it's it's not so much a race as to who's first it's a race to get the measures in place so that then internationally the benefits can follow. Professor Janet Hook, thanks very much for talking to me from New Zealand. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. And that's Australia Wide for this Monday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely Monday evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.